FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Another cold day across the state of Georgia, but we'll warm you up with another hour of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, so happy to have you with us today. Um, I am joined today, as I am on virtually every Thursday, by the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the boss himself, Mr. Kevin Riley. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm good. It's good to uh, be with you, Bill. I'm really looking forward to this show, and I can't recall the last time you called me Mr., but I like it. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that's what you required of everyone who worked for you at the Atlanta paper. <laughs> Kevin, you're right. I'm looking forward to this show, too. Uh, as I said in the introduction to the show, uh, we're going to be talking to Larry Ty about his new book, Demagogue, the Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Larry, it's a real pleasure to have you here. But before we talk about the new book, uh, and, and before we talk about the headlines of the day, President Trump on a rant yesterday that was jaw-droppingly breathtaking in the scope of misinformation. I th- when I looked through your catalog of books, Larry, I thought your range of interests, your sense of curiosity, I, I was so impressed by. I mean, you've got the new book on McCarthy. You wrote a book about Bobby Kennedy and his transformation from a cold warrior into a liberal icon. Um, You wrote the biography of Superman and the creators of Superman. I think that Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, I assume. Um, You wrote a book on the Pullman Porters. I mean, I could go on, but Kevin Riley, you probably know this. Larry Ty also wrote a book about your Cleveland Indian, Satchel Paige. (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, um, he he lets me make the point by, 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 you know, since we're bringing it up, that Satchel Paige, who who played a a role in integrating the American League as the Cleveland Indians were the team to do that, but he was also a member of the team, the Cleveland Indians team that last won the World Series, which was 1948. And as Bill, as you know, I lament on this show, the Indians have not won the World Series in my lifetime. (laughs) So, Larry, again... Welcome to the show, but I, I really do think your curiosity is something to, to watch. Um, so thank you for joining us today. So great to be with you. And Bill, you're much too polite, but what you're really saying is I have no focus and I write endless things on topics that I know nothing about. And I want to just say, Kevin, of all the interviews that I did for the Satchel Page book, my favorite was sitting down for two hours in a hotel room with the most cantankerous member of that Cleveland Indian team, who was Bob Feller. And Bob Feller was trying to redeem his reputation of being a racist by telling me how much he loved Satchel. And he went on and told me that for two hours. And it was the most extraordinary interview that I think I've ever done with an athlete. Yeah, Bob Feller, uh, of course, is iconic in Cleveland and I think worked very hard to salvage his reputation and did a lot of appearances. Uh, Some people would joke that the rarest of all baseball souvenirs in Cleveland was something not autographed by Bob Feller. Uh. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Larry, I want to start talking uh, about the McCarthy book. 
Um, if, you, if we can, though, I'd like to at least be, at, begin by framing it in terms of where we stand right now in this remarkable period in which we have a president of the United States who refuses to acknowledge that he lost an election which he lost by almost 7 million votes, and yesterday put online a 45-minute video in which he spins one piece of misinformation, one lie after another, pretty much summing up everything that's been on Twitter for uh, the months, uh, the, the time since the November 3rd election and the aftermath when it became clear he had lost. Um, it's, so, Larry, when you watch how Trump is behaving today, how do you put that in the context of what you learned as you researched the life of Joe McCarthy, because clearly there are many similarities. So I would say Trump borrowed in a way that is shameless from the Joe McCarthy playbook. And let me give you just a couple instances. Demagogues, when they don't have a solution to a problem, point fingers. When they're attacked, they aim a wrecking ball at their assailants. When one manufactured charge against an enemy is exposed as hollow, they lob a fresh bombshell. And as you know, Bill, and you know, Kevin, when the news is bad, you blame the newsmen. And in all of those ways, it is very clear that Donald Trump borrowed from Joe McCarthy. But it's not just me as an author trying to sell books making this connection. It is the fact that there is a flesh and blood connection that Donald Trump's mentor, an aging New York mm. fixer named Roy Cohn, half a century before, was Joe McCarthy's protege. And Trump learned directly from Roy Cohn exactly what Joe McCarthy would do in any situation. But I have to add a postscript. I would have said, and I did say in my book, that Joe McCarthy was the archetypal demagogue in American history. And if I were rewriting the book today, I would say things like what he said yesterday would make me reconsider and maybe hand that mantle to Donald Trump. Because Joe McCarthy at least understood when one of his people lost an election, that was the end of it. The election results mattered. And Donald Trump never learned that lesson from Joe McCarthy. Larry, talk a little bit more about Roy Cohn. I mean, that name has come up during the Trump era, uh, and uh, people who you know studied some American history are aware of it. And there have been a few books written about him. But but explain that character and his range of involvement in, 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 at high levels in American politics. So Roy Cohn was a young, brilliant arrogant lawyer in New York at the time that Joe McCarthy was taking over this very powerful Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations in 1952. And McCarthy needed a chief of staff. He started looking around. He almost hired a guy named Bobby Kennedy as his chief of staff. Joe Kennedy had given a lot of money to Joe McCarthy, and Bobby did get a job, but it was as the number two. He brought in as the number one Roy Cohn, partly because he understood that Roy Cohn was as, as blatantly and uh, brazenly ruthless as he was, and he would be his perfect sidekick, partly because Joe McCarthy at the time was being accused of being an anti-Semite, and he figured 
hiring a young Jewish lawyer would be the perfect fig leaf of protection from those charges, and partly because Joe McCarthy just did things in a um, spontaneous and sort of um, thoughtless often way, and he didn't realize all the downside that would come with bringing Roy Cohn on his staff. And Roy Cohn, as much as Joe McCarthy, was responsible for Joe McCarthy's ultimate downfall. So it was a bold move, a reckless move. And as Bobby Kennedy said in what I think was a wonderful characterization, Roy Cohn took Joe McCarthy up the mountain in a toboggan. And they came down with no brakes, and it was an incredible ride down the mountain, but the crash was inevitable. You know, we have this uh, quote from Trump early in his presidency, where's my Roy Cohn, Larry? <laughs> Where, where's the guy now who could do for him what Roy Cohn uh, had, had been as a fixer so many years before? So, Bill, he kept saying, he keeps saying, anytime he gets into trouble, where's my Roy Cohn? And I think if it weren't un-PC, what he would really be saying is, where's my Joe McCarthy? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. So I want to ask you about an interesting quote. Again, I want to build it around what the way in which Trump has been and some of his enablers have been promoting the conspiracy theory about this stolen election. Uh, Sidney Powell uh, who is no longer a, on the Trump legal team, at least according to Rudy Giuliani, was just in Georgia yesterday in Atlanta. She um, held a rally in which she continued to spin out these fantastic stories about an international conspiracy, Hugo Chavez, Dominion voting machines. But here's what I think in terms of all that is fascinating. In 1951, Joe McCarthy made a speech in the Senate And here's just a few lines of it. He said, and of course, we're talking about the communist conspiracy, and probably in a few minutes, because there are going to be people who really don't know the story of Joe McCarthy, and we'll we'll lay it out in, in more detail. But here's what he said in that speech. How can we account for our present situation unless we believe that men high in the government are concerting to deliver us to disaster, talking about the communist infiltration? This must be the product of a great conspiracy on a scale so immense as to dwarf any previous such venture in the history of man, a conspiracy of infamacy so black that when it is finally exposed, its principles shall be forever deserving of the maledictions of all honest men. I mean, that's the way the terms that people are using the Trump enablers today to talk about the vast conspiracy that's stolen the election from Donald Trump, Larry. So that is true, and we have to talk about who he was pointing the finger at when he gave that speech. And that, to me, is the extraordinary thing. It was one of the most noble heroes in American history. It was General George C. Marshall, who helped orchestrate the Allied victory in World War II. So it wasn't just that McCarthy was using outrageous language. He was using it about a guy who was the most uh, bipartisan hero of that era. And one of the shameless things about the reaction to that speech is that George Marshall's pal, a guy named Dwight Eisenhower, was running for president then. And Eisenhower had in his hand a speech that he was going to deliver attacking McCarthy for attacking Marshall. And Eisenhower's advisor said, don't do it. We might need McCarthy's votes from the state of Wisconsin. 
Eisenhower tabled his speech. And I think one of the few regrets that Dwight Eisenhower ever had in his life was not standing up earlier against Joe McCarthy and not standing up on behalf of his pal, George Marshall. And if that isn't reminiscent today of people lacking the political courage to stand up against what Donald Trump is doing, then I'm not sure what is. Yeah, Larry, that, that need of, for Wisconsin voters certainly, uh, certainly resonates. You know, as Bill was reading those words, it just struck me that, uh, you know, McCarthy was not I mean, he was, was he somewhat eloquent, at least compared to Trump? I mean, he seemed to really handle words well. How important was that? Or is that just the language of the 50s or 40s sounding a little bit better today? So I think he was much more eloquent than our current president. I think he was, um, and this is something shocking that I never thought I would say about John McCarthy, he was less shameless than our current president. And there aren't many people you can say that about comparing to Joe McCarthy. And he is somebody who I would have loved to have gone out and had a beer with Joe McCarthy, because once he got off his podium, he was an incredibly charming guy that anybody who met him, even people who he attacked, said in private, he could be a real charmer. And I'm not sure we would say that about Donald Trump. Um, Let me you know, rephrase that. I'm sure really I wouldn't say that about Donald Trump, but the, okay. <laughs> Although I do think I do think there are people who believe that 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 Trump does have a charm that that uh, comes across in personal conversations that may not win over people in terms of the behavior uh, in, in other ways, but have said you know he really does have a certain charm in person. But I I do think what you're saying, Larry, is interesting uh, because in my career just beyond McCarthy, you're talking about McCarthy here. It, it's true. Some of the politicians that we might disagree with most vehemently, some whose uh, philosophies are most abhorrent, uh, I found at times just what you're saying. Let's go have a drink. You're really an interesting guy. <laughs> so I think you're making that point, Larry. Um, so I am making that. And what I would say also is that I think that Joe McCarthy, or I know that Joe McCarthy and I think that Donald Trump don't quite understand the effect on people's lives that their rhetoric has. So when Donald Trump is attacking voting officials in the state of Georgia, he's trying to make a political point with it, but he's affecting real people's lives. He's putting people's safety at risk and these officials are tarnished forever and lots of people because Donald Trump says they're bad guys, think that they're bad guys. And Joe McCarthy did that in a way that he could rake somebody over the coals during a hearing in the afternoon and then invite them out for a drink at night because he assumed that it was all a game and that everybody understood the rules of the game and that when you were in political combat, you accepted that as part of being in political combat, and then you could be friends afterwards. And he never understood what the impact of his words was. And there were two U.S. senators who actually took their own lives as a direct result, I think, and their kids think, of their battles with Joe McCarthy. And there were a dozen other people who committed suicide. There were hundreds of people whose careers he ruined, and there were millions of Americans who were 
politically afraid to speak their mind, especially liberals, because they'd be accused of being a socialist or a communist. His words had real effects in the same way that we see it happening today, that words and rhetoric do matter when they're uttered by very powerful political figures. You, you, Larry, you, you used the word that, that some people were afraid, and, and I know that we're going to get into some of the real nuts and bolts of McCarthy and how he became so prominent and what happened. But fear seems to be a common theme when these kinds of things happen. And, and would you say that that's true and that there has to be a certain level of fear or a certain kind of fear among Americans when, when we find ourselves in these situations? So I would say that demagogues, one of the things that defines the demagogue is understanding what makes people afraid. And back in the 1950s, all you had to do was say the word communist, because we all knew that the Soviet Union was out there as our enemy. And pointing a finger at somebody on a domestic front and saying that they were a communist tapped into that vein of fear. Fear was a huge piece of McCarthy's rise to power, just like it is today. In 2016, it was fear of immigrants pouring across the border and fear of others that Donald Trump was as brilliant as Joe McCarthy in tapping into and knowing how to play that fear. And something I hope we can get into is one of the antidotes to that kind of fear is newspapers like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and wonderful radio operations like Georgia Public Broadcasting. The media, much before politicians, are the, are the sources of strength in our society that can stand up to and expose demagogues for what they are. And we've done it today the same way the media did it back in the 1950s. So, Larry, let me ask you a reductive question. You have titled this book Demagogue. You've used the word demagogue. We use the word demagogue routinely. We've used it on Trump occasionally. Uh, we look at uh, people like Huey Long talk about demagogues. Um, that we can name others. But, but so let me ask you a very basic question. What do you mean? What is a demagogue? What does it mean that a political leader is a demagogue? So I could take us back to the ancient Greeks who coined the word and go through all kinds of philosophy, but I don't want to do that. I want to actually give you a one-word de definition. To me, demagogue is, in a way, a synonym um, for the word bully, and that is, at its core, my book is about America's long love affairs with bullies. There were bullies who came before Joe McCarthy, people like the... Um, the Jew-baiting um, minister, radio preacher from uh, Michigan named Father Charles Coughlin. Uh, we all know Huey Long, the would-be dictator from Louisiana. There were, there were demagogues who came after Joe McCarthy. The KKK's David Duke, George Wallace from your neighboring state of Alabama. The reason I picked Joe McCarthy, and the reason I picked that one word is that I think Joe McCarthy was the archetypal demagogue. He embodied all the ones who came before, and he set the playbooks for all the ones who came after. But at its core, a demagogue is a bully. So um, it, it strikes me that one of the other uh, one of the main tools that a demagogue uses is lying, and um, you have a great. Uh, 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 section of your book in which you talk about that. 
You say that, and I'm going to quote from the book, McCarthy, and here's the quote, learned early that there was no worse a penalty for a big lie than for a little one, but that only the big ones drew a crowd, so he told whoppers. <laughs> and he understood that if you told one lie and the news media, you know, the newspapers, the radio in those days, uh, went after you, uh, if you followed it up quickly with another big lie, uh, you would be able to keep advancing your story, right? So absolutely right. And if I could just tell a quick story, how John McCarthy's crusade against communism was born with a big lie. And that was, um, it was on the anniversary of Abe Lincoln's birthday in 1950. And as maybe your listeners know, uh, Lincoln Day dinners are a premier event in the world of American Republicans. That's when you get together and have a fundraiser, you bring in speakers. And if you were a prominent Republican in 1950, you ended up delivering the Lincoln Day dinner somewhere like Atlanta or New York. Boston or Chicago, when you were Joe McCarthy, a backbencher who looked like he was on his way to being a no-name, uh, one-term Republican senator from Wisconsin, he got invited to Wheeling, as his staff called it, Wheeling West by God, Virginia. And he showed up there that night to deliver the Lincoln Day dinner with a big briefcase. And in his briefcase, he had two speeches. One was about a topic that he actually knew something about, which was national housing policy. And if he had delivered that snoozer that night, 50 years later, Bill, we wouldn't be here talking about Joe McCarthy. But instead, he reached deeper into his briefcase, and he held up in his hand a barn burner of a speech saying that there were 205 spies in the American State Department, and they were undermining the security of America. Now, what he had in his hand that night might have been his grocery list. It might have been a recycled <laughs> list of old spies that we had already exposed, but it sure as heck wasn't 205 spies at the State Department. But within two days, he was right, on page one. That was Go the ahead, big lie, that. and it worked. And within two days, he was on page one of every newspaper in America, and he discovered that reporters loved to be on page one and that his charges would show up on page one. The response by the, the people he was pointing the finger at would end up on page 24 a day later, and he realized that there was no price to be paid. There was only glory in telling dramatic lies, and so he kept telling them. A perfect place, uh, and I apologize for a minute ago uh, interrupting you, but we've got to get to a break. It's a perfect place to do it. We're going to come back with Kevin Riley and Larry Ty, talk more about Joe McCarthy, the parallels that many people see to Donald Trump today. Uh, but right now, let's uh, pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
We're back. Kevin Riley, uh, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, of course, joins me as he does on Thursdays. And uh, Larry Ty, author of Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, is with us. Uh, also, we should point out, Larry, former Boston Globe reporter. But, you know, there's a, you have another interesting aspect of your life that I didn't mention at the top of the show. Uh, you run uh, an organization called the Health, Fellowship, the Health Coverage Fellowship, which has as its goal, I think I'm right in saying— is designed to help uh, reporters like me, reporters like Kevin's at the AJC, do a better job covering health care issues, public health issues. Uh, clearly, that's an organization that has uh, important uh, uh, work to do right now, yes? Uh, yes, and we just wrapped up our 19th year of it with reporters from, among other places, um, CNN there in Atlanta and the only reporters in America that are more exhausted these days than political reporters are the ones who are out there covering COVID 24-7, <laughs> and it's a huge challenge. Kevin, you would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we, we have a group of people devoted to us. We have the CDC down the street. And uh, as you know, Larry, one of the biggest stories that we've been following, and we were among the first to get on this because of previous investigative reporting, is just the toll in uh, senior care facilities of, of all sorts. Uh, in Georgia, we think that perhaps as many as half of the deaths have occurred in those kinds of facilities. And uh, Carrie Teagarden, one of our investigative reporters, has really led the charge there. And as I'm sure your, your group is discovering, that is a very uh, perilous situation in this pandemic uh, right now and one that has been difficult to manage. So it is incredibly perilous. And the number that stuck in my mind, in Massachusetts, they determined that one in every seven people who was in an elder care facility has died of COVID. And that just, these numbers are so shocking and we will be untangling all of this forever. Um, that's a, I'm really, I was really glad to see that you were working uh, in an organization that's trying to help reporters do uh, the best job possible on that. And maybe we should have you back to talk more about that aspect of your work at some point. I, I do want to go back to McCarthy, Trump parallels. Um, but I, I, I want to say, and Kevin, you've heard me say this on the show before, Everybody knows, if they listen to Political Rewind, that our goal always is to be as balanced as we possibly can, to give voice to both sides, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, when they're on the show, whatever. Um, and, and I think, for the most part, we manage to do that. But I've also said that we're in a moment in history where it is not a partisan matter to say that Donald Trump is trying to undermine the American election and essentially democracy itself. And it is not partisan to talk about that. It's part of the fact-based uh, role that I think we play. And I, I hope our listeners get that this isn't about Republicans and Democrats. I think they do, Kevin. And I know at the newspaper that can be an issue for you at times as well. Absolutely, Bill. I mean, I think that we are in a time where our, uh, the goal, certainly at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I know uh, with this show, is to give people information that we know is true and reliable and let them make up their minds, but not to fall into situations where in an effort to be balanced, we create a false balance. I mean, 
it is wrong yeah, false under any search. Yeah, it, it is wrong to undermine election results without evidence. It doesn't matter what party affiliation you have or what your politics are. It is simply wrong. If you have evidence that somehow the election is not uh, what it should be, then it's crucial to bring that forth. And and I think that um, it's become a very, very uh, strange time. And I think it's great we're talking to Larry because somehow the defeated presidential candidate has found a way to completely dominate the news uh, at a time like this. And I, I would assume, Larry, that's another sort of feature of demagoguery in a way. So it is. And the medium... Uh, that Joe McCarthy was dominating. He was dominating newspapers and radio and TV was too new to matter mm. as much back then. But a demagogue is brilliant at dominating whatever the medium is of their day. So if Joe McCarthy were around today, he would be tweeting as much as Donald Trump does because he would go to whatever his most unmediated medium is, and that is Twitter. Um, I also think that one of the other lessons from the McCarthy era for today is you were talking, Bill, about this being a nonpartisan or a bipartisan issue, and I agree. And I think, though, it is essential when people from within the political party of the demagogue stand up because they can do it with more credibility and call out their own party member. And the one who did that most nobly back in McCarthy's days was a woman, the only woman in the U.S. Senate, and this is the only thing, her call out of McCarthy, that she is remembered for today, and it's a woman named Margaret Chase Smith. And she stood up on the floor of the Senate right after that speech that we were talking about in Wheeling. She delivered with six moderate Republican, fellow Republicans, what she called a declaration of conscience, saying that what McCarthy was doing was violating the basic tenets of democracy. And for her efforts, McCarthy dubbed her Snow White and her six dwarfs and went after her electorally. But history has judged her incredibly kindly for standing up that way. And I want to just say one more thing about her, which is that the person in the U.S. Senate today who considers herself Margaret Chase Smith's doppelganger, whether she deserves it or not on this issue, is a senator from Maine named Susan Collins. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought about that. Margaret Chase Smith, the Maine senator. Susan uh, Collins, would. Uh, there are people out there who do like the fact that she every now and then takes issue with the president, but there are clearly a lot of people out there who uh, resent the fact that she has not gone further. And there were many people who thought she was going to lose her re-election campaign uh, because uh, Democrats would uh, overwhelm her. Obviously, that didn't happen. Kevin? Well, since Larry got into proceedings in the Senate and, and what happened and famous things <laughs> that were said, there one of the most famous lines out of the McCarthy era uh, what is that have you no decency sir um, and I just wonder if you could quickly you know take a shot at, at where that comes from and who said it if it's not uh... I want to sure. I want to so, stop you I want to go to that wait wait I want to go to that in a minute because I want to play some sound I want to play some sound from that but I'd like to set it up if we could do that okay so first of all Larry uh, leading up to what Kevin's talking about, let's say 1950, 
Joe McCarthy makes a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, the Lincoln Day speech, 205 communists in government. You have a phenomenal uh, little section of the book. Uh, David Brinkley's uh, sister was McCarthy's secretary, and she refused to talk to David or anybody else about who McCarthy was, really. But you point out that she later said he didn't have 205 communists. He didn't pull a list of them out of a, a paper. And that's really interesting stuff. But... It's 1950. We're at. We're in a Cold War. We are legitimately fearful of the Russians. I mean, there's good reason for fear about the Soviet Union and its efforts to dominate uh, world politics. Children are learning how to duck and cover in schools, as if hiding under a school desk is going to protect you from the nuclear bomb that falls upon your city. So the fears were real. But as McCarthy begins his campaign, he lies about who the communist spies are. This leads to blacklisting of thousands of people who are accused falsely. The entertainment industry is affected in, a, in an enormous way. Stories about the Hollywood 10 and, uh, and, and, and what happened in the film industry are legend. So all of that leads to the point where McCarthy has become an incredibly powerful figure. Now, I just wanted to set that up for people who just don't know the most basic things about the McCarthy story. Now, Kevin asks you about that wonderful, wonderful moment when Joseph Welch confronts Joe McCarthy in a Senate hearing at the Army McCarthy hearings. And we've got a good clip from it. Can you just tell us what sets up the conversation that we're going to listen to a portion of. Sure. So Joe Welch is this brilliant and incredibly um, savvy lawyer from Boston who is representing the Army. There have been months of televised back and forth between Army and and um, between the Army and Joe McCarthy, who was attacking the Army for supposedly harboring communists at its bases. The Army was saying McCarthy was a liar. And McCarthy then does something that even for Joe McCarthy was outrageous. He attacked Joe Welch's young colleague, a young lawyer who wasn't even part of this case, and said that this guy's belonging to a liberal organization suggested that he must be a communist and wasn't this horrible. Now, Joe Welch, the clip that you're about to play may be not just what Kevin said, which was the most famous lines from the McCarthy era, but they may be the most famous words ever uttered by an American lawyer anywhere. And it looked like it was a spontaneous expression of outrage, you know, have you no decency? In fact, Joe Welch had had those words in his back pocket, knowing that McCarthy had no decency and that at some point he would be able to pull those out and utter them like the perfect actor that he was. And maybe we can hear the words now. That's we're going to hear a, a bit more than that. I, I, I've edited this just because we can't play the whole thing, but we're going to hear Joe Welch and, and McCarthy go back and forth. We're going to Joe Welch. Uh, has repeatedly said to Roy Cohn, who's sitting next to McCarthy in these hearings, who are these communists in the uh, army? How many are there? Who are they? Can you tell us about them? And that leads to what we'll listen to now. I think we should tell him that he has in his law firm uh, a young man named Fisher, 
whom he recommended incidentally to do the work on this committee, who has been for a number of years a member of an organization which was named, oh, years and years ago, as the legal bulwark of the Communist Party. When we know of anyone serving the Communist cause, we let the agency know. Uh, we are now letting you know that your man did belong to this organization for either three or four years. Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. Fred Fisher is a young man who went to the Harvard Law School and came into my firm and is starting what looks to be a brilliant career with us. Little did I dream you could be so reckless and so cruel as to do an injury to that lad. It is true he is still with Hale and Dorr. It is true that he will continue to be with Hale and Dorr. It is, I regret to say, equally true that I fear he shall always bear a scar needlessly inflicted by you. If it were in my power to forgive you for your reckless cruelty, I would do so. I like to think I'm a gentleman, but your forgiveness will have to come from someone other than me. Now, I just give this man's record, and I want to say, Mr. Welch, that it has been labeled long before he became a member, as early as 1944. Senator, may we not drop this? We know he belongs to the Lawyers Guild. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? So, Larry, I wanted to let that play out, and that's just edited because it goes out, It was longer than that, but that's the main point. And I just thought it was important to let it play out because it is truly one of the great moments in 20th century American history, the confrontation uh, by a man of decency uh, to a demagogue like Joe McCarthy. So it is, and I think what really has to be known about that moment as well is that after listening to months of a guy that many Americans thought was a hero, at that point in the hearing, he looked more like the town bully. And I think all of America wanted to ask with Joe Welch whether McCarthy had any decency. McCarthy started the hearings at the beginning of 1954 with a full 50% of Americans supporting him. And that was higher than anybody in America then other than Dwight Eisenhower. By shortly after that line of have you no sense of decency, his numbers plummeted to 34%. Suddenly his fellow senators developed a backbone and took him on and censured him. But it took that, it took McCarthy essentially, like most demagogues, exposing themselves the way that I think one could argue Donald Trump did before the election to bring them down. Given enough rope, just about every American demagogue has hung themselves. 
Kevin? Well, that, that, that was what I was going to ask about, Larry, is what, what brings them down, and, and you answered that. Uh, you were generous in your assessment of the press earlier in our conversation, but I, I want to ask you, um, uh, you know, the press has received, obviously, there are entire books written about the press's behavior during the McCarthy era, but a lot of criticism during the Trump era. So, you know, as a journalist, what would you have to say coming out of all this work on this book as it applies to the press today? I would say the lesson is precisely the same, that the majority of journalists back in the McCarthy era were Joe McCarthy enablers, not people who stood up to him. The majority of the press today write what Donald Trump says in his tweets um, and don't fact check and don't do the rigorous work. But I prefer not to look at that majority. I prefer to look at the noble elements of the press, including your newspaper, Kevin, including your station, Bill, that have stood up and have done it in a way that helps bring down the demagogue. If there was one journalist who has been credited by history and by Hollywood for bringing down Joe McCarthy, it is Edward R. Murrow. But in fact, it is boring newspaper reporters and columnists who really brought him down. Murrow got involved in things late, and while he had drama, he's the first one to say, I was not the real hero. Yeah. Um, okay, we got to get to a final break uh, in the show today. Uh, but uh, when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about McCarthy. And then I kind of want to, Larry, I think both Kevin and I would love to hear you uh, as, an out, as a guy from outside of Georgia. Uh, what are you thinking as you watch this uh, election of ours unfold? We'll do that in just a minute. Larry Ty, in your deep research for Demagogue, the life and long shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, you came across a phenomenal quote from George Gallup, who described McCarthy's supporters this way, quote, even if it were known that McCarthy had killed five innocent children, they would probably still go along with him. Wow. Does that remind us of something that happened within the last few years here? It does. So it reminds us of the most famous line uttered by President Trump before he was elected in 2016, and it was almost verbatim what you just read. Trump said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters. And I think, again, it's not an accident that he replicates the actions and reconstitutes the words of Joe McCarthy. Larry, I know we're going to move on to some other things, but I always love to ask this question of someone, uh, especially a journalist who's done a book, your favorite part of the book, your favorite discovery in all that time and all that research and all that work so that when people read it, they'll, they'll spot it and enjoy it as much as you enjoyed writing it. So that's a great question. And the answer is that it's the same way as when I wrote about Bobby Kennedy, who started out as my hero. And I realized that in many instances, he had feet that were very much made of clay. And I saw all kinds of bad things about Bobby Kennedy. But at the end, he remained a hero because he was flesh and blood. With Joe McCarthy, it was the other way. I started out thinking he was the most malevolent figure in American history, and I realized in some cases he had been telling the truth and nobody recognized it. And the dramatic instance of that was Joe McCarthy, when he first campaigned for Senate, campaigned 
as Tail Gunner Joe, this war hero from World War II. And all the reporters back in Wisconsin said, no, you were a land-based intelligence guy. You weren't a tail gunner. You were once again lying. Well, we now have um, McCarthy's daughter open to me all of his personal and professional papers. We can see that he was, in fact, a heroic tail gunner. He volunteered for missions. He came under enemy fire. He deserved the dozen medals that he got. And that doesn't mean that he wasn't a malevolent character, but it means that he was the flesh and blood guy who did some things for good and more things for bad. And in the end, he became more real to me. I loved that moment because I was all prepared before getting to you that point in your book to say, well, we know that even the beginning of his career, he lied about his service in the war. And then you ruined that line of questioning for me. <laughs> uh, that he really, I thought that was a wonderful discovery on your part. Okay, so Kevin, you know, you and I talk about this all the time, all of us here in Georgia do. Larry, here we've got this runoff election in Georgia. We have got a, uh, we got Kelly Leffler uh, and David Perdue, the Republicans. Uh, Leffler, even more than Perdue right now, towing the Trump line and continuing this conspiracy theory uh, about a, a stolen election. So you've got those Republicans. Um, and on the other side of it, you've got a secretary of state and the manager of the elections, Gabriel Sterling, both of whom have been guests on this show, saying, stop lying. We ran an honest election here. Watching the, just the Republicans in Georgia, Larry, as they tear each other apart over this, I would think must be really fascinating from your position up there in Boston. It is. So I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying I started my journalism career in the state of Alabama, and I know how much Alabamians appreciated having Yankees like me come down and preach our version of politics. So <laughs> I presume people can block their ears now with what I'm about to say. But I think the, the race that I'm more familiar with is the David Perdue one. And I think in many ways, the same way Donald Trump borrowed John McCarthy's playbook, Perdue has has, and I want to give you a couple quick instances of that. Purdue famously had his um, reference a month or so ago to Kamala Harris, uh, to Kamala Harris's Kamala, 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 Mala, Mala, I don't know, whatever. That kind of name calling is trademark Joe McCarthy, who referred to one of his enemies back in the 50s as Senator William Benton little Willie Benton, Connecticut's mental midget. So we have name calling. We have veiled anti-Semitism the way Purdue was uh, the talking about his um, Facebook ad with a um, his Jewish opponent seeking to open quote by Georgia close quote and he had that widening of Ossoff's nose. We've already talked about McCarthy's anti-Semitism. It was never overt. It was always veiled. There is Purdue's calling his opponents socialists and radicals. And I thought we had lost that kind of name-calling back in the era of the 1950s, but it seems to work as well today. But most importantly, we have David Perdue, rather than standing up and calling out Donald Trump for his finger-pointing and his lies, instead he's joining in this call for your uh, Secretary of State to resign. I mean, these are things directly 
out of the McCarthy playbook. And you two know Georgia politics so, so, much better than me, so you can correct anything I've gotten yeah. wrong. But are there similarities? Well, I, I, I do, Kevin, I do. Well, Kevin, I do think it's it. We're going to, and tomorrow on the show, we're going to talk, really dig deep on the Senate uh, runoff and Chuck Efstration, the Republican uh, uh, House member from Gwinnett County, will be here. And I, I'm sure he'll have a somewhat different take on, on some of what Larry just said. What's interesting about how Larry, as somebody from Boston who views this, he thinks about this as David Perdue. In fact, I don't think there's any distance between Purdue or Leffler in terms of the radical socialist agenda. In fact, that was, of course, the the meme that Republicans in races across the country used uh, in the general election. Um, so I do think it's interesting. And right now, Kevin, it's Leffler who really seems to be sticking, as I said a couple minutes ago, to the Trump script. Purdue sort of tried to pull back from the, the harshest of that uh, right now. At least that's my take on what's been going on here. That doesn't excuse the way in which he treated, talked about Kamala Harris. Um, it is true that an advertising firm did seem to lengthen John Ossoff's nose. So he makes points. But I do think it's interesting that he focused on Purdue, whereas we're looking at them as a package deal. You know, I, I, what I would point out is, is the distinction Larry made between things being overt, you know, and, and, and where the messaging goes. Because even the Republicans who wrote the, you know, the former leaders, which included uh, former Governor Deal and Saxby Chambliss and Johnny Isaacson, they wrote the letter about let's get off this uh, bad election thing and get on to the to the runoff. Um, they they say things like. Um, maintaining control of the U.S. Senate so that our children and grandchildren can continue to enjoy the national security, economic opportunity, and personal freedom that have defined our great nation. So, so there's sort of this theme of the other, you know, that has really, uh, and, and Larry pointed that out early in the Trump campaign, and I just remember yeah. being present at his um, nomination acceptance speech in Cleveland where he talked about immigrants. And so I, I just think it comes back to that fear thing. And, and Joe McCarthy knew fear worked, and I think that other politicians know it, it works too. Yes. And so that sense of the other is the key to what demagogues do brilliantly. And we just, I thought we had outgrown that. And this year's election suggests that we haven't. And I hope the voters of Georgia are smart enough to see through that. Um, you know, we, we haven't seen a poll on that. I, I don't know what, but we do know, Larry, that there is a certain crowd out there. We saw them up in uh, the rally that Sidney Powell um, and, a, and, and Atlanta lawyer Lynn Wood, who's been a Trump enabler. In fact, he's gone way beyond. He's telling people don't vote in the Georgia runoff election. So is Sidney Powell. They have followers. I, Kevin, maybe we'll see a poll from the AJC, which will uh, ask a question about whether people buy this notion of a rigged election. I'm hoping we will, Mr. Riley. We'll see what we can uh, we can do, uh, Larry. You'll see this. Bill gives me assignments on this show all the time. I, be careful; it. he may give you one. <laughs> I love it. All right, I, I'm sorry to say we are so completely out of time, um, Larry. It's it's been just such a pleasure to have you on the show, Larry Ty. The book is Demagogue: The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Thank you for joining us today for Political Rewind. Let's come back and talk public health sometime. I'd love to. Thank you both. Okay. 
Kevin Riley, see you again next week. Hey, take care. And all of you out there, take care. Stay healthy. Please wear a mask and start thinking about when you're going to vote in the runoff election. See you all tomorrow morning.